If you believe the groundhogs, this winter shouldn't last much longer. But with the wacky weather we've experienced this season, who knows what the next 22 days will bring before spring. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Because winter is officially not over until March 20th, we wanted to share some ways to help make the last bit of the cold season warm and cozy. During the winter months, a lot of us dream of a tropical getaway. But if you can't afford a trip to the Caribbean or just don't have the time to get away, you're in luck. The New York Botanical Garden has recreated several tropical environments right here in the Bronx. I got a tour of the indoor oasis from the Botanical Garden's Nick Leshy. Right now we're in the Enid A. Haupt Conservatory, which is uh, this beautiful Victorian glass house that was uh, built in around 1901 or 1902. Um, It was restored in the 1990s, and then this past summer it was closed down just to do some electrical upgrades, refurbish some of the plantings, and uh, it opened up with our holiday train show again. And our Palms Gallery, which is the house that we're in right now, it's about 90 feet, a dome, the iconic uh, site here at the New York Botanical Garden. It used to be just Palms of the Americas, and we've installed um, some palms from around the world. So right as you walk in, you really get that feel of being in the tropics and, you know, with the snow outside, it's just, it's really beautiful. Let me point out that when you walked in, your glasses fogged up. It's very true. It's just a, it's just a burst of, you know, warm, humid air, which is a, a really nice escape from what we've been getting here in New York the last couple of months. As soon as I walked in, and it's about 20-something degrees outside this morning, as soon as I walked in, I took my coat off. I had to. Exactly. Well, a lot of these different rooms that we will be walking through, the temperatures range between 55 and 75, depending on the plants that are on display. But it is that kind of warm feel. And um, during the summer months, it gets a lot hotter outside. The glass actually has to get painted with a whitewash to reflect some of the sunlight so it doesn't overheat the plants. But for now, in the winter, the sunlight that comes in really keeps it warm, plus the, uh, the heating that we do have set up in here. How warm would you estimate it is in here? Uh, it depends on the gallery and the plant collections, but it, it ranges up to uh, 78 degrees, maybe. Pretty sweet nice. in the middle of winter in New York City, isn't it? Exactly what you're looking for for a little escape. You don't have to fly down to the Caribbean. You can just come right here to New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. I actually said to your security guard here, you have the best job in New York City. It's a lot of fun, especially when there's ice in the road, and uh, you just want to come in here and enjoy the palm trees and the, uh, the tropical plants. So These palm trees are pretty tall, no, no doubt. They are very tall, and it's just, it's, it's, like I said, it's great that this is the first thing people see when they walk into the conservatory because it really gives that sense of that lush green tropical feel. You're not going to see palm trees on the, uh, on the sidewalks of the Bronx like you do in some other cities around you know, the country. But. I don't know much about palms, so how varied are these palm trees here? Um, they are from around the world, and what we have here is a, library, is a, a museum. You'll see um, little labels telling you where they're from, their Latin name plus their common name. So as you walk through, it, it gives you the feel that you're in the tropics, but it also you realize that it is a, a display. And um, our staff, our horticulture staff, does a really wonderful job of making it a display that people can learn from. So you have audio tours. Um, we have docent tours on weekends and, and certain days. So it really is both... Uh, an escape, and also a learning experience for visitors. So if we walk over here, for instance, on my left, I see a banana tree back there, a banana plant, I should say. And that's one of the uh, the tropical plants, the Caribbean plants that you'll see here. You'll see uh, everything from mango 
to bananas to orchids, uh, just a wide diversity of things. Um, kids especially really get a sense of pleasure learning where all these things come from because they go to a supermarket and they see just you know fruits and vegetables and things like that. It, it, they get really a thrill out of learning that vanilla comes from an orchid or uh, seeing the actual plant that coffee comes from or that chocolate comes from. So it's a, it's a really learn, a learning experience. So if you walk me around a little bit, where else can you take me? What else can you show me besides these wonderful palm trees? There's a tropical rainforest, both a highland and a lowland. There's an aquatic room that has aquatic plants. There's two desert galleries, one for the Americas and one for Africa. And then there's another room that has carnivorous plants. Shall we take a step inside the tropical rainforest, Nick? Of course. And you can see on, on the floor, it's, uh, our horticulture staff has, uh, has watered it. And what that does is that helps the, uh, the humidity. Describe what we're looking at right now. This is pretty amazing. There's just an arch of trees in front of us, and there's leaves hanging down. And you almost forget that you're in a glass house because all you see is just the uh, dapples of sunlight coming through the leaves. And there's these big, uh, big leaves in front of you. And um, it's just, it's really spectacular. Right to my left right now is a mahogany tree. And um, there's just orchids on top. Uh, if, if we go a little further, there's butterfly orchids right here, which is this little um, yellow and orange orchid. And it just looks like a dancer just floating there in the sky. It's just really spectacular. And the sun is shining on it, so it does give it a little radiance there. But orchids are one of those things that is just, uh, just beautiful. They're so diverse in color and shape. What kind of tree is that? A calabash tree? Calabash tree. Um, it's native to southern Florida, the Caribbean, Central America. Um, and again, there's it, such a diversity in the tree types that you see here. Um, you'll see trees that you just aren't going to see in the Bronx. How does the garden go about obtaining these plants? Some of them have been in our collection for a while. Others are brought in, and you know, some are just you know, grown from seed. So it's just it's a diverse... Uh, method of, of obtaining stuff. Just like any museum, we try to build our collection, try to preserve what we already have. Right here, this is one of our favorite, the cacao tree. So this is where chocolate comes from. And if you can see right there, that's a, a cacao plant. So when kids see that, they, they're like, that's where chocolate comes from. Wow. They, you know, they think it's just like a nice powdery Hershey's bar or something, but it's really great. You have here set up a hut of sorts? Yes, this is a, rep a reproduction of a healer's hut. So it, it gives the illusion of what people might see in a tropical rainforest as researchers go. And um, traditionally, healers in uh, some of these indigenous places, um, they would use some of these plants for medicinal purposes. Um, and just like nowadays, our pharmaceutical companies go out, and that's where they get a lot of their ingredients and things like that. Healers, um, they would know exactly which plants would help with digestive problems, which plants would help with you know, other illnesses and things like that. So it's, uh, it's just a little recreation of that. And it also reminds people that our scientists do go out in the field across the country and the, you know, across the world to just do research in, in tropical rainforests and all these different climates because that's where a lot of these uh, plants grow. One thing that I do notice is that you do not have wildlife outside of the plants and the trees here I do not hear. Birds, I don't hear parrots. Every once in a while they do get in here. You don't know how they do it, but... The New York City parrots, the ones, the monk parakeets, have you seen those in New York City in the I've Bronx? I've seen them, and I don't know where they came from, but uh, they're, they're very uh, vociferous in my neighborhood, I don't, especially in the springtime. 
Is this a working thermometer here yes. at the rainforest? This will show you we're about like 75 degrees in here. So each, each, each room has different temperatures, and um, our staff maintains it. And it depends on the plant life, obviously. In the tropical rainforest, it'll have to be a certain humidity and a certain um, temperature, whereas in the desert gallery, it's going to be a little drier, um, maybe a little hotter. So we can walk through these doors here, and we will be in the world of aquatic plants, won't we? Yep, and it's one of the most beautiful, uh, peaceful places in the conservatory. So you've got papyrus uh, growing on the side here, and uh, what you're seeing here is a fountain. We've got water lilies and lotus on it. Um, Overarching it, we've got um, jade vines, which aren't fully in flower yet, although some of them are coming out. Then you've got queen's wreath, which looks like uh, wisteria, I guess, a little bit. But it's this purple plant that's just growing, and it's, just, it's, it's really beautiful. And uh, you've got the sun shining through, so it's, it's just spectacular. Again, you could also feel the temperature change in here compared to the rainforest. Exactly. So it is uh, a little bit less humid, I would guess, but it's, uh, it's also a little warmer, I think, with the sun coming through here because there's not that much shade from all the foliage that you had in the rainforest. So where else can we go? Where else can we transport ourselves here in New York City? Now, as you can see in the, in the water here, there's like an inky dye in it that we put in just so it would, it would reflect. And that's where the, uh, in the reflecting pool in the Palms Gallery is the exact same way. It reflects the dome, and it's just that's a beautiful sight. So now we're going back to the tropical rainforest through another door. This is the lowland rainforest. You, you have tropical rainforests, but they're really different depending on where you go. So if you go to Brazil, it'll be a lot different from a rainforest uh, somewhere else. Um, so it's just a diversity. It's really very interesting on the senses because, again, here it feels a little cooler mm-hmm. than it did in the other exactly. rainforest section. And it's just the, uh, the aroma. You know, you could just get a whiff of some of these, these plants. And, uh... So, again, you've got more signs as we come here. We've got an ice cream bean, which is uh, named that because I think the, uh, the flavor tastes like uh, vanilla ice cream. Um, you've got coffee plant here which, uh, again, a lot of people drink coffee, but they don't know where it comes from, and you can see some of them are in flower, the little coffee beans. And we will climb the steps here to the deserts of the Americas. Yes. And anyone who needs, you know, wheelchair accessibility and things like that, there's a little lift right here that'll take them right up. So, um... Cacti. You feel like you're in a different place, right? What you have here is just giant cacti, and this uh, thing over here looks like the Medusa of cacti. <laughs> but this is something that I think you'll be amazed by. Um, it's called a Ponderosa lemon. And, uh, that is a huge, huge lemon. lemon. <laughs> so what this is, is this is a hybrid between um, a lemon and a citron. And um, it's grown to this amazing size. I mean, it, I wish you... looks very science fiction. It. It's, it's just enormous. It's... Um, it's, pro- it's probably larger than a grapefruit. And from what they told me, it tastes just like a, like a regular lemon. I was going to ask, did you ever try one? I haven't tried one, but uh, it's just spectacular. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's larger than a softball. It's just really big. And just the contrast, just aesthetically, it just looks beautiful because it's this beautiful um, yellow with the green leaves, and then you've got some orchids, purple orchids in the, in the back. So it's just uh, it's really beautiful. So, I mean, that's, that's the basic uh, quick walk tour. And I, I've left so much stuff out. I think people that will come and spend hours can find different things. They'll see, uh, you know, 
um, a mango tree or things that I, I missed on my way in. So a lot, a lot of things. And vacation packages go for how much? <laughs> well, the funny thing is during this shoulder season, we are discounted at half price. So um, a normal $20 ticket to see our exhibitions is now $10. So this is the perfect time to actually come and enjoy the New York Town. But I'm telling you, Nick, you set up cots and people will stay for weeks at a time. <laughs> you know, that might be something. They do that overnight sleeping thing at the museum. That, you know, so, yeah, why not? <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for the tour. No problem. Thank you for coming, and I hope you know, your listeners can come and enjoy the New York Botanical Garden. Nick Leshy is with the New York Botanical Garden. The last day for the Caribbean Garden exhibit there is February 27th. One of the trees at the Caribbean Garden exhibit grows beans that are used to make a warm delicacy many people enjoy during the winter months, hot chocolate. If you're feeling experimental, there's a place you can go to try hot chocolate with flavors like hot chili, spicy fig, and beer. The Hot Chocolate Festival at the City Bakery features a unique flavor of hot chocolate every day in the month of February. Cityscape's Andrew McCreary went down to the bakery and talked with the creator of the Hot Chocolate Festival, Maury Rubin. How long has the Hot Chocolate Festival been going on? The festival has been going on for 19 straight years. I started it um, in the second year of the bakery when I was working on, in, I was in this very experimental mode, and I was working on a bunch of different flavors of hot chocolate where I was infusing different items into the base. And um, I wanted to have a bunch of people taste that, taste that. So I, um, one night later at night, I put out the stationery for the bakery all along the floor, and I, I, I walked over it with a ladle of chocolate, just basically spilling chocolate on the paper, um, went home, came in the next morning, the chocolate had dried, and I sent that out as an invitation to a bunch of people to come in and taste all the hot chocolates. So that was the sort of first, um, at the time, unofficial but official City Bakery Hot Chocolate Festival. And how do you come up with all these different flavors? There's some very interesting ones, such as the hot chili pepper one and uh, the beer one. The beer one is um, the, the beer one is strange and delicious. Um, the way I come up with the flavors is, is a funny question because it's a straightforward question. I've probably never been able to answer it well enough through the years. Um, you know, I'm just, in, in my mind as baker and hot chocolate maker, um, I'm just processing all the time all kinds of possibilities. And I, I think about it to a great degree. And I just sort of, I spend about, I really spend about, I'd say, 12 months of every year in the back of my mind thinking about things. And then two months of the year I get into more of a sort of, okay, there's a new festival around the corner and let me start working on things now. So I spent about two months in, a, in the kitchen working on some new flavors mode. Um, and, and there's probably you know, one or two new flavors at least every year. I'd encourage people not to be scared of the beer hot chocolate. It's delicious. <laughs> and, and how does that taste? I can't really imagine those two flavors together. Well, the <clears throat> what happens is that the beer has the, the beer has some malt and some grain in it, and the malt lends itself nicely with chocolate. Um, there's a bitter the, there's a sort of bitter uh, frame that the beer that the beer has. And what I do is I make the chocolate a little bit sweeter. And then the combination of that little bit sweeter, I balance out with the bitter of the beer, and it's a, it's really a delicious flavor. And it's just, it's it's rich chocolate, a touch sweet, um, that you sort of you sort of come to this little bump in the road, and that bump is bitter beer, and it's it works. And there was a Super Bowl flavor. What was in that? 
The Super Bowl flavor uh, was, of course, beer, and it was a blend of beers that had to do with beers that came from the cities of the teams that were playing in the Super Bowl. And how do people react? Do they buy a lot of the specialty hot chocolates, or do they kind of stick to the same old, plain, just regular hot chocolate? I, I think people are all about the flavors. People really love the idea that you can taste uh, vanilla bean hot chocolate or ginger hot chocolate and banana peel and uh, caramel. So the flavors really, they outsell the original uh, by far. Um, and I think that it's the flavors that really get people's imagination because they've never seen these combinations before and they're totally game for it. Do you have a favorite? Um, well, you know, they're like children. So I, I can't, if I, if I said which favorites, I, I might psychologically damage some of them. You know, um, but I do have favorites. My, my favorites are the kind that, um, that are sort of transforming so that an example is the banana peel hot chocolate, as an example. It tastes like banana and chocolate, and that's a great combination. I love that combination. It's a very popular combination, and I think it's delicious, and a lot of people do. But something like bourbon hot chocolate. Um, bourbon in the hot chocolate, the bourbon tastes different than bourbon normally tastes. The chocolate tastes different than chocolate normally tastes. And the, the result, the combination of the two is this delicious, special thing. And the kinds of flavors that are my favorites are where that's happening. What's your best-selling one? Well, the, the sort of crowd-pleasers are the, you know, the best-selling ones. Uh, caramel is by far the friendliest flavor and the biggest-selling. Banana peel is way up there, too. Um, so it's the sort of milk chocolate, caramel... If you can walk through a supermarket anywhere in the country and say, you know, that's a popular flavor, then if I've got it on the menu here as part of the festival, it's probably a really popular flavor here too. Can people try the flavors before oh, they sure. buy? Absolutely. You, we're happy to have you taste little samples of, every, of all of it. Do you ever make them uh, other than the February Hot Chocolate Festival month? Well, it, March, the first... The first two weeks of March are always a funny time because there's a lot of people coming and saying, oh, I missed the X, Y, or Z. So um, we do some repeats. Yeah, we sort of, we do, the first week of March, if you're in City Bakery, chances are pretty good there'll be a flavor floating around. And there's a surprise finale this month. There, there's always a surprise at the end. Sometimes it's based on a new, something new that I've developed at least half the time, it's actually based on what I'm listening to and hearing from customers and what I know they would like a last chance at before the festival closes. All right. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Cityscape's Andrea McCreary talking with Maury Rubin, the owner and founder of City Bakery in Manhattan. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. Today, we're looking at things that are warm and cozy in New York City. With 22 days left before spring, we thought, why not? So now let's really turn up the heat. Cityscape's Morlene Chin takes us to the Juvenex Spa in Manhattan. The sidewalks of Herald Square are covered in piles of snow. 
The temperature hovers below 20 degrees, but the Juvenex Spa on 32nd Street provides a very different atmosphere. Entering the spa feels like walking into a rainforest. Plants cover the floor space. The air is humid and warm. The spa is filled wall to wall with facilities meant for customers to sweat and detoxify. It's the best place to stay warm and get warm after the cold winter. Right here we have a high temperature sauna. It's the Jade Igloo Sauna. It's very good for detoxification and healing. The spa's manager, Nadia Hubener, walked me through what the spa calls the Jade Journey, starting with the dome-shaped Jade Sauna. It's made of 20 tons of semi-precious stones. The stones are said to have healing properties to soothe sore limbs, but don't be deceived by its igloo shape. It is hot inside. When you go in a sauna, it's about 180 degrees, so you warm up your body and you start sweating, so it helps to release the toxins from your body that brings very good health benefits. 180 degrees. Unsurprisingly, most here today lasted less than 10 minutes inside the sauna instead of the recommended 30. Nadia says building resistance to the heat takes practice. We have some people that leave after five minutes and move on to different to another steps. But normally, if you try it a few times, you will get used to it and you can stay up to 30 minutes at a time. The next step of the jade journey is meant to provide relief from the heat. Sitting right outside the sauna is a sake-filled soaking pool. The temperature of the water is 40 degrees, a shock to the system that causes some to jump over to the 85-degree pool a foot away. We hear some screaming and laughing, absolutely, yes, but it's very good. It gives you the boost of energy that you need in the winter. And then we go, when you go to the warm one, it helps to open up your pores. It's too cold out. We're ready for spring. <laughs> That's Kelly Sonner. She says the spa provides relief from the chilly winter weather. It was so great coming in off the street today because it was extremely bitterly cold, especially in the face. So just coming in and transitioning from the hot shower to sort of thaw out and then going from heat, heat source to heat source, it just feels great. Anne Norling came from a heat source, California, to a cold source, New York. So she took time out of her vacation to vacation at the spa. I left 74 degrees in California and we came after the flight, took the subway, came up the subway and almost got blown back down by this gust of wind. I swear it froze the inside of my nose. <laughs> so this is very nice today. Beating the cold at the spa comes at a cost. The Jade Journey, for instance, will set you back $65. Not cheap, but cheaper than a plane ticket to Bermuda. For Cityscape. I'm Morlene Chin. Another way to relax and keep warm in the winter is to knit yourself a sweater. Our next guest says it's not just for grandmas. Her styles are inspired by New York City, including a subway hat and a coney sweater. Christina McGowan is the author of Modern Top-Down Knitting. Christina, good morning. Hi, good morning. First of all, a lot of people, I think, have this notion that knitting is something for grandmothers. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> oh, no. I, it, it, it's a perception I can understand because I think a lot of people have, you know, fa older family members that, that knit. But I think the appealing part of it is that it is something that's handed down, you know, that can be in families for many, many years. Um, my grandmother, you know, definitely knit and um, taught me. And I just think it's become a lot more... Uh, it's prevalent with all of all ages, children. I mean, know a lot of children now that knit, and um, so I, I think it's uh, slowly wearing off that it's your grandmother's 
pastime. Is it difficult? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I tell everybody that I that I teach that it's you know it's 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 really just uh, you know yarn and needles. It's nothing. It's not overly complicated. I'm, I'm you know there's certainly are techniques that are more time-consuming, but I, no, I don't think it's hard. Now, you're a knitwear designer based here in New York City. Does the city in any way inspire your designs? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, just wandering around, if I, I'm inspired by, you know, my friends and uh, my my neighborhood. I live in, I live in Brooklyn at the moment, but, you know, you go to the fabric, the fabric district and, you know, just if you're on a hunt for buttons, for example, there's just, you know, there's about three or four stores where it's just all buttons of every make. And, I mean, just creatively, I I would be challenged to think of a more inspiring place than New York. There's just, there's nothing you can't find here. You know, if you want a, you want a piece of leather, if you want to work with leather, if I, I made a pair of slippers and I wanted them to have leather soles, you know, there's a store called Leather Impact. I think it's on 39th, and you walk in and it's, you know, floor-to-ceiling leather as far as the eye can see all the way down. And I don't, uh, I find that um, creatively. I think it's every day uh, being in New York. It's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful place to to work. I was flipping through your new book, Modern Top-Down Knitting, and I noticed several designs with New York themes like the subway hat. Oh, yes. I was on that. I was on the subway actually one day and a woman was sitting next to me, and she had she had this old wool hat on, and she had cut the back up so that it sort of fit on her head more like a bonnet. And we were talking. I just, you know, every day too, traveling around New York, you don't know who you're going to meet or meet really interesting people. And um, I just was inspired by how it fit her. I really it was just really cute. And uh, I went home and and sort of came up with my own version, and that eventually made it. Um, into the book. It's hard to come up with names for your items because you work with them for so long. I mean, some of them you create the hat, not so much, but, you know, with the dresses and the coats, you, you spend, you know, a good three or four weeks maybe making them. And so they go through all different incarnations in your mind of, you know, how would how would you name this item? And living in New York, it's, you know, paint, nodding to things that I really like or, you know, buildings or streets or neighborhoods or places that I really um, have grown to care about um, was was the way I decided to do it for the book. You have the Chrysler Building-inspired skirt that you created. <laughs> the chevron pattern in that skirt did remind me of the Chrysler Building. I had initially, you know, in the early, early incarnations of the book, I thought of recreating sort of motifs uh, in the city, and um, I, I ended up going with things that were, you know, much less literal and opting for, you know, what the uh, design was over, you know, adhering to something strictly literal. But that was one of the um, stitch patterns that I had experimented with that I really, um, that I just really liked. And it did, I always, I had always from the start called that one the Chrysler Building because the, the Chevron pattern, that's my favorite building in New York. So it was nice to be able to, to name it that. The South Street Seaport also inspired you to create a skirt, didn't it? I love the I love the seaport. Um, many many years ago, before I even moved to New York, I I was down there, um, and that when the fish market was still down there, and it was very very early in the morning, and um, I just that was the first time I thought, wow, I, this place is uh, it's just it, you know I'm in the city, you know that kind of feeling where everybody's so kind, and um, it was incredible that that day. I I, I still remember um, the 
the fish market and, and just the activity and that, that whole area I really love, but yeah. Earlier, Christina, you helped to break some of the misconceptions about knitting. So let me just, though, ask you this question. Are most knitters female? Do you encounter male knitters? Oh, I do. I have a lot of, um, I've I've had a lot of students, people that I've taught that are um, quite a few men. Um, I think it is predominantly, predominantly women, but there, there, you know, there are definitely um, men, men who knit, but I think less so maybe in this this country, I don't know, in, in Austria, my mom's Austrian, and um, they learn it in school early on, very early on, so everyone sort of, it's, you know, men and women, but um, there are men that, <laughs> I have my, one of my best friends is a, a very talented male knitter. Okay, Christina, anything else about knitting that you think we should know about? Uh, I just think it it, uh, it adds something really wonderful to your life, to, it's a, you know, um, has meditative <laughs> properties that you just can, you know, really calming. And I don't think there's anything more sort of gratifying than giving something to someone that you've made and that's taking you time and, you know, no better expression of love than to do that. I think it really adds something to your life. Christina McGowan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Christina McGowan is the author of Modern Top Down Knitting. A lot of her designs are inspired by New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget to check us out at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Want to get updates on the show? Well, then look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a warm and cozy weekend. Love is going to make it right.